If you'd like to take your Bible at this time and turn to the book of Job, and uh, it's been a number of weeks, so let's um, let's kind of gather around the dinner table and uh, start setting it up uh, to remember uh, what this is all about. Um, as soon as we open the book of Job, we are impacted with a view of suffering that really challenges conventional thinking. Uh, we are, as soon as we open the book and we read the first couple of chapters, we see what we might call a, a multidimensional view of suffering. What do I mean by that? Well, in chapter 1, Job loses his animals, he loses his retirement basically, he loses his land and his field, his crops, he loses most of his servants, and he loses his children, um, all in, in one uh, short span of time. And what's interesting is when you read the book and you read just that one chapter, you walk away with this in mind. The Sabaeans did it. Right? They were the ones that came in and killed the guys. We also know that Satan was involved in that whole thing. Right, He was the one that uh, asked God's permission to wreak havoc in Job's life. And yet all throughout the, letters as, or the chapters as well, we see God's providential hand in that. So we have these, these three levels of explanation, three levels of suffering. And, and this, we might say that this has to do with what we might call causation, who caused it, who's responsible for it. And in thinking of, of suffering through the lens of causation, responsibility, who, who's doing it, we get three answers. We get the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, we get Satan, and ultimately we know God is sovereign over those things. Okay, And we kind of go, hmm, that's, that's challenging, isn't it? But there's another level here, and this is so important to see as we move into this part of the book. There's not just the issue of causation. There's an issue of what we might call intention, Inten, T-I-O-N, right, or purpose. Okay, So let's go through our characters again, and let's think of it through the lens of intention or purpose. What was the intent of the Sabaeans? What was it? What was their goal? Yeah, their goal was evil, wasn't it? It was wrong. It was sin. It was to go in and wreck somebody's property, kill their servants, take their food. What about through the lens of Satan, or, or what the character of Satan? What was his intention? What was his purpose? It like, yeah, right. It, it was to get back at God. It likewise was evil, okay? And, and I, I appreciate you saying that because that's what I want to flesh out just a little bit here. His goal is to get back at God, okay? Now, what about God? What's his intention? What's his purpose? Think Genesis 50. What is it? You just heard that last week, right? What's his purpose? God is causing all things to work together for good. That's right, okay? So his purpose is good. And, and, and that's challenging because, I don't know about you, I look at that and I go, wow, that's a really challenging explanation for what's going on in this man's life. 
But that's exactly what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that this is true, that the Sabaeans were responsible at some level, that Satan was responsible at some level, but God is sovereign over it all. And what the Sabaeans and Satan meant for evil, Genesis 50, God meant for good. Okay? Now that's very important as we move into the second part of the book here because what we're going to see is Job's friends coming in and, and Job himself and, and these terrible, tragic events. And what we're going to start to see is what is the good that God is going to bring out of this? Okay? Chapters 1 and 2 were about what character in the book? Chapters 1 and 2 were mainly about what, what character? Satan, right? And th- this is very important. Satan's ultimate goal in evil in this book and in all of Scripture, his ultimate goal in evil is directed at demeaning the name of God. Do you see that? His goal was to, to show the heavenly host that God was not worthy in and of himself of worship, that the reason people worshiped God is because he had blessed them or given them some gifts or made their life so good, and that was the only basis. And if, and if someone were to take those things away then nobody would worship God. It was all about the benefits that they would get. And so Satan's goal was to demean the name of God. And this is what's hard to think about, but it's absolutely true. Satan's ultimate goal is not to hurt people. It's to demean God. Okay? Um, I spent some time kind of going through a whole bunch of Scripture this week on Satan, and it really is remarkable. His goal is never ultimately to wreak havoc in the lives of people. That's always a means to an end. And, and, and the end in mind that Satan always has is to demean and dishonor the name of God. You say, well, why then does he use people? Well, people are made in the image of God, right? And so God's visible glory is shown in people, right? That's what we're supposed to do. As the image of God, we're supposed to reflect the glory and the image and the character of God. And Satan has one very, very, very large problem with what he wants to do. He can't touch God. He can't hurt God. There's nothing he can do to God directly. He is a created being. So what does he do? Satan brings evil in the lives of God's image bearers. And through the image bearers, he hopes to demean the name of God. Do you see that? That's what he's up to. Um, Influencing people to sin is a means to de-glorifying God. And since Satan can't hurt God, his only hope is to adversely affect his creatures such that God's name is demeaned. And I was thinking of that just as a footnote. We often personalize Satan's attacks, don't we? Don't we do that? Oh, Satan's attacking me. Satan's out to get me today. And oh, man, he must be really be tempting me. And we personalize Satan's work when in reality what Job has shown us is that it has nothing to, really to do with Job. It has to do with demeaning the name and glory and character of God. And Job is just a means to that end. Okay, And I think it's very important that we see that Satan's goal is to rob God of his glory through God's creation, through people, his image bearers, since he can't touch God directly. Now, 
So we see this multidimensional view of suffering. And we've also seen that the book of Job really gives us three themes that are hinged around the three main characters of the book. The book starts off uh, with Satan, right? And Satan has what we might call a worship problem, as I just explained. And God's goal is to show Satan that he is worthy of worship. It's not about the benefits, although we're appreciative of those, right? But God's goal is, is through this process, the good he's trying to bring is to show that we worship God because he is worthy, not because of the benefits. And we see this played out in the life of Job as he loses his health and he loses his family and his really his retirement all that. He loses all that. The part of the book we're in now moves on to another issue. And that issue, that character in the book here is the issue of the three friends. And their issue is that they have a wrong view of suffering. Okay? So what's going to come down here is Job's going to get this disease and the ongoing nature of his suffering is going to reveal the wrong theology that they have on suffering. They have a purely retributive view of suffering. You do right, God blesses you. You do wrong, God brings uh, problems into your life. It's a, it's a retributive view of suffering. And so as we move along here, we see uh, this theme being developed. We've seen it in Eliphaz, haven't we? Um, you'll remember in um, in chapter... Four, when Eliphaz first steps on the scene, chapters 4 and 5, Eliphaz basically says, you know what, Job? The innocent don't suffer. You remember that? The innocent don't suffer. The reason you're suffering is because there must be some sin in your life. But as this goes on, we see the third issue raised, and that's the issue in Job. And we've already seen it. We're going to come back to it again today. The third main issue, this book is about three themes, worship, suffering. What's the third one? What's the third one? It's justice, isn't it? Okay? And what we're seeing as we enter into this section is Job starting to bring his finger up at God and say, you're not doing what's right. You're not doing what is just. Uh, So with all that in mind... Let's, uh, let's jump back into uh, Bildad's speech, which is where we left off last time in a Sunday school far, far away. Uh, let, let's look at this together. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the, the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? See, See, their view is that God is just, but they have a wrong view of his justice. They have that retributive view. Job's view is that um, God is, is, is not holding to that, but he's actually doing something wrong. He's actually engaging in acts of injustice. Verse 3, or, I'm sorry, verse 4. If your son sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. What is he saying there? We talked about this last time briefly. What is he saying? 
That's right. He says, remember, remember our view of suffering is retributive, good, blessing, bad, cursing. Well, hey, your sons died. Your sons had this tragedy. Obviously, there was some sin in their life. And, and he, um, you know, I didn't notice this the first time I went through it. He, he, he couches it with an if. Did you catch that? If your sons, okay? And so it, it, maybe that's his way of, of kind of, uh, um, you know, packaging it a little bit in a more of a kind way. But he's basically saying, look, your sons died. Obviously, they had some sin in their life, and they just got what was coming to them. Uh, and he crosses over that line. So when we think about Bildad, he affirms God is just also, and he concludes that the reasons Job, that Job's children perished was because of their own sin. And uh, just insert comment there, if uh, you've ever had anybody attack your children or accuse your children or any of those types of things, you know exactly what that feels like as a parent. Furthermore, he... He encourages Job to seek God in the right way. I mean, it's like in the one moment he's, he's saying, well, your kids got what was coming to him. And then in verse 5 he says, if you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you. So he encourages Job, even in the midst of that, to in seek God and, and to seek his compassion and to seek his grace. Um, you know, it's very important. That, remember, these are very godly mature friends that Job has. They're wrong about their view of suffering, but they're right about a lot of things too. We saw it in Eliphaz. Eliphaz said, I would seek God. I would go to him. I would uh, rely on his mercy. Go, go to him and ask him and, and entreat him and trust him. And then, uh, this was really funny because I don't know about you, as I've gotten into what Job actually means and I've actually gotten into that part of Job that most of us skip over, this, all this dialogue stuff, I've found myself relating to these guys more and more and more. Have you found that to be true? Listen to this, verse 6. If you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though, though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. What's he saying? This is the part where you guys think about it and tell me what you think. Yeah. What's he saying when he says, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. What's that? that? Yeah, isn't that true? He says, just go to God, tell Him what you did wrong, and God's going to restore all this stuff. He's going to bring your, not, not sorry, bring your children back. He says, restore your righteous estate. Your end will increase greatly. Just go to God, and He'll make it all better. Does He know that? Does He know that to be true? And I read that, and I went... You know, I can relate to that because when someone is suffering, I want to give them advice and tell them it'll all be okay, right? Um, the, the, if you don't believe me on this, just go to the um, card section at Walmart and look for some encouragement card, some get well card, and they're all based on 
hope and encouragement that has absolutely no basis. I just know you'll get better. I just know things will start looking up. The flowers are blooming. They're, you know, and they do this silly stuff. Or, or we might say to somebody, you know, maybe their, their marriage is, is struggling. Oh, I just know God's going to restore your marriage. Or, or someone who's had a, a tragedy. I just know God is going to do this in your life. And um, maybe somebody is single looking for, I just know God's going to provide a spouse for you. And we make all these promises in hopes that, that we can encourage people and yet, those promises have absolutely no basis of truth in them. And I think, in part, Bildad is, is he's speaking out of his theology, because his theology says, you do wrong, you get punishment, you do right, you get blessing. And he's saying, Job, repent, just start doing right, you'll get blessing. So it does reflect his theology. But it's also, I, I can't help but read this, and you're going to see this theme, because all three of the guys do it. I can't help but just say that these are guys that are watching their friend hurting and they're trying to make him feel better. Do you see that? So he says he encourages Job to seek God in the right way and then predicts things he does not know, right? Verse 7, let's look at these together. Verses 6 and 7, he's going to restore the righteous estate. His end will be will greatly increase. Look at verse, Look down to verse 21, 22. Um, or look at verse 20. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers, yet he will fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. He's saying, Job, it's going to be okay. But again, he doesn't know that. And how many times have we tried to encourage somebody by telling them that something will happen only to discover that it doesn't happen? And they put all their hope in what might be instead of the truth of God's word, which is a sure foundation. So again, I think we are exhorted uh, through the example of the friends that we need to be careful how we encourage people, don't we? We don't want to give people false hope. We don't want to give people false promises that we don't know to be true. Verse 8, he appeals to the tradition of the elders again and to nature. We won't go into that because it's a long, drawn-out deal. But basically he's saying this retributive theology, you put good in, you get blessing, you put bad in, you get cursing, that is the teaching of the elders according to verses 8 to 10, and it is the teaching of nature. It's irrefutable, Job. So you must have some sin in your life because verse 20 God will not reject a man of integrity right God doesn't he says Job God doesn't do this to people that are righteous and he concludes that God is just and will not reject the man of integrity okay so we see Bildad's heart we we can see some good theology that God is just, that he should seek God, but they're still hung up here. They're still hung up on this this retributive thing. Okay? That that's it's it's like the only tool in the box. It's the only pair of glasses they have on their eyes. It's it they they're seeing everything through that one lens. And even though, as I said, it's true that the Bible says people reap what they sow. Um, that reflects a simplistic and thus unbiblical view of suffering. And 
wrong theology. I hope you guys see this. Wrong theology leads you to wrong living. Do you see that? Wrong theology leads you to wrong living because theology is the lens through which we interpret everything. And if our theology is wrong, then we interpret things wrong and we live out of how we interpret what's going on in our life. And we give advice out of how we interpret what's going on in our life. And we say things and we do things about how we interpret what's going on in life. So when we get our theology wrong, we're already in the ditch spinning our wheels. And the sad thing is that just doesn't affect us. It affects those around us that we're trying to minister to. I have no doubt these guys had hearts of gold. They were there trying to help their friend. But their wrong theology led them to actually... Uh, discourage and, and hurt Job rather than help him. So Job responds. He agrees with Bildad. Look at verse 2. In truth, I know it is so, meaning, meaning that God is just, right? But, and, then, and you guys marking the questions, remember? Are you marking the questions? The questions in the dialogue sep- section of Job reveal the points that we're supposed to see. The questions in the dialogue section of Job reveal the points that we're supposed to be thinking about. Listen to this wonderful question in verse 2. But how can a man be in the right before God? Isn't that a great question? God is just. He does, uh, he does not reject a man of integrity. But how can anyone be right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, <laughs> he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Okay? Though he, re- though he thinks that God is wrong, he recognizes the futility and foolishness of trying to contend with him about it. Now let me look up for a second. I want to explain to you what, what's going on in this section because we, we're going to get lost in the dialogue here in a minute. Here's where Job is at. It's like, think of it like this. It's like the theology he learned in Sunday school is colliding with his current life experience. Do you see that? The theology that he knows about God is colliding with his experience because he's saying, I know God is just. I know he's righteous. But what's going on in my life right now is saying he's not righteous. And the frustration is he has enough good theology to say, I can't go to God and contend against him. He's God. But at the same time, he's stuck in despair. He does not know what to do as his theology and his experience collide. Uh, One of the wonderful themes of the Psalms and of Job um, is the theme of theology and life colliding. You notice that before as you've read the Psalms? Lord, you say this, but this is happening to me. Lord, you promised this, but then why does this happen? And we feel like that in our lives too, don't we? We feel like that as well. And we see these moments, we see the honesty of this man wrestling with what he he thinks he knows to be true about God and what's going on in his life. And the frustration is, here's the key, okay? The frustration is he doesn't feel like he can do anything about it. You say, why is that? Let me show you why. Well, he says, you know, you you can't dispute with him. You can't say, God, I think you're wrong on this. He's the judge. But he genuinely thinks that God is wrong. Look down... Um, he, uh, let me just read it because this is a wonderful section of scripture to read. 
uh, as he talks about God's greatness. Listen to this, verse 4. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains, and they, not, they know not how, when he overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Sounds like Psalm 104, doesn't it? Who makes the bear, Orion, uh, Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? Those are all astrological references. Those are all stars in constellations. And it's interesting um, scholars, at least on the first three references there, scholars are absolutely convinced those are the same constellations that we look up and see today. Um, Orion, of course, you know, and, and the bear would be the Big Dipper. Uh, Pleiades and then the chambers of the south probably refer to a bright band of stars in Orion. Who does great things, unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Listen to this. Were he to pass by me, I wouldn't see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? He's saying, God is so great. He's glorious. He's made all these stars. He's made the sea. He's made the land. He's done all these things. And he does it all without us ever seeing him personally. Like, well, he does this stuff. I don't see him walk by, but he's there. And he's doing all these things. But he says in verse 12, but, but who, who can change that? Who can stop him? Who can do anything about that? The end of verse 12, who could say to him, what are you doing? A being that great and powerful and amazing. and wonderful. You can't say, what are you doing today? I don't like how you're hanging the stars. I don't like where you put the sea. I don't like the temperature in Granbury today. You can't do that because he's God. And you see the frustration? He knows that's true. He knows he can't contend with God. But he genuinely, in his experience, in his heart, believes God is doing something wrong. His theology is colliding with his life, and he doesn't know what to do about it. Verse 13, God will not turn back in his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. That's a reference to a place in court where the judge has found the plaintiff guilty. I'm sorry, not the plaintiff. Has found the person on trial guilty. And there's nothing that guy can do about it right at that point. All he can do is, is ask for the judge to be merciful in his sentencing. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I can't contend with him. He's found me guilty. I just have to implore his mercy. If I, if I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. Why? Verse 17, For he bruises me with a tempest, and he multiplies my wounds without cause. Something very, very different just happened. He sees what God is doing to him as unjust, without cause, he said, right? And he, this, listen to me, he is afraid that if he were to go to God, even imploring his mercy, that he would just get more punishment on his life. That God would just pour another bucket of, iniqu- of iniquity and punishment on him. Look at verse 18. He will not even allow me to get a breath. He saturates me with bitterness. If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. He says, I can't arm wrestle him. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Verse 20, key verse, listen. Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. 
Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. God's being unjust. He's declaring me guilty when I know I'm guiltless and I can't do anything about it. Not only can I not do anything about it, I'm afraid to go to God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been afraid to go to God? You ever been in a place where you feel like He's just disciplining you or punishing you or, and you go, Lord, what are you doing? What, what are you doing in my life? And, and, and God, God ceases to be a refuge and a father and a friend and He starts looking more like an enemy, like someone you have to take a step back from, someone you can't get too close to. That's what's going on in his life right now. He's saying, God is doing this without cause. He's punishing an innocent man. I know I should go to him, but I'm afraid of what he will do to me if I do. Verse 22, it is all one. Therefore I say, now, now listen to the verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 21. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. Verse 22, it is all one, therefore, I will say. He destroys the guilt, guiltless and the wicked. Whoa. He just took a big step in the wrong direction. If this is the way it is, then I will say it boldly, Job says. God punishes everybody. He treats the guilty the same way he treats the guiltless. He, he destroys the guiltless and he destroys the wicked. He's out to get everybody. Verse 23, if the scourge kills suddenly, then he mocks the despair of the innocent. Not only does he destroy the guiltless, he mocks the innocent. He destroys them with a laugh, Job says. He's up in heaven laughing, mocking the innocent, as it were. And we see, as we saw the last time Job respond, this view of God arising in this man's heart that is a monster. This is not the God of Scripture. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? He says, no one else could be doing this. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They, they slip by like reed boots, like an eagle that swoops on its prey. And though I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful... Look at verse 28, another key verse. I am afraid of all my pains. I know that you will not acquit me. I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? What's he saying there? What's he saying? We've seen him here before. Where did he go? He knows God will not acquit him, right? So what does he say? If God's not going to change this, if God's not going to equip me, that's it. Why even bother to keep on going? He's right back where he was in chapter 3. What's the point of trying? What's the point of enduring? If this is how it's going to be, why should I continue on? Look at verse 32. For though he, God, is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together, there is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us. Look at this. He begins to fall back into despair and into accusing God. Right? We saw that. And then 
He says he wants to take God to court, but he can't because there's no umpire between them since God is the judge. He says, if, if, if this was a dispute I was having with my neighbor, we have courts to resolve that sort of thing, right? But the problem is God is not a man. He's the judge. He's, and he's the prosecuting attorney for that matter. He, he's the jury. He's everybody in the courtroom. You can't take him to court. There's no arbiter. There's no umpire. There's no judge. And so again, we see his, his frustration. He can't, he can't do anything. Verse 34, let him remove his rod from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But I am not like that in myself. That's a very sad verse because as he sees this retributive, God is punishing me, God is disciplining me, God is hurting me without cause, what does it do? He says, I'm afraid to talk to God as long as he's doing that. Do you see that? I'm afraid to go to him. I'm afraid of what he might do if I go and even question him. But he says, well, let God remove his rod and the dread of him terrify me. Let that go away. Then I'd feel more comfortable speaking to him. Do you see that? How we interpret things is so huge. If you think God is a cosmic killjoy, if you think God is a retributive, harsh bitter judge who's just out to get you. You will never see him as your hope and refuge. And what's amazing, I always think of Nahum chapter 1, where it talks about God being like the storm, like this great and powerful thunderstorm in his awesome day of judgment. God avenges. He comes in punishment and wrath. And Nahum just develops this, like this, this thunderstorm that is brewing and tornadoes and, and lightning. And that's like God coming in his judgment for sinners. And then I think it's verse 7. He turns the corner and he says, But the Lord is good, a stronghold, in the day of the storm, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. So it's like this. God is the judge. God is the one to be feared. God is the one coming in punishment. But our only hope is to run into the middle of the storm because that's the place of safety. That's the place of him being a refuge. And Job doesn't see that right now. All he sees is God coming in judgment. And he doesn't see that God is his refuge. But it gets worse. He's afraid to talk to God because of the fear that he will inflict more punishment. We just, we just said that, right? He's afraid to talk to God. He's afraid to go to God. And what a terrible place to be where the Lord who is called in Scripture as our friend becomes our enemy as the gracious father becomes a harsh, bitter, distant parent. You know, it's interesting. We, we've had a number of cases in our counseling ministry where people have come and they have a very judgmental view of God in, in, in an unbiblical way, if you know what I mean. You know, God is just, very much like Job, God is just punishing them, God is just out to get them. 
Um, and I remember one lady in particular trying to help her to, to sort of rediscover who God is. She, she had had a number of terrible life experiences, and how she interpreted those experiences led her to a very wrong view of God. And we're trying to help her to change her view of God. And, and she would take one step of trusting in Him, and then she would take about five steps backward. And then we'd work with her some more and she'd take a couple steps of trusting him, of seeing that he is a refuge, he is the pearl of great price, he, he is the one to go to. And we see that and then we'd see her fall back in that. Um, it's very, very hard, very, very hard to, to get out of that place where we see God uh, the way he truly is and uh, not the way that Job and, and others have come to see him. All right, let's, let's finish this response here. Chapter 10. Out of his despair and bitterness, he begins to accuse God again. Watch how he ups the volume here, okay? Watch this. Chapter 10, verse 1. I loathe my own life, therefore I will give full vent to my complaint. We saw him do that back in chapter 7, verse 11. He's going back and forth, right? Back and forth. I don't know what to do. I'm frustrated. I know God is this. This is my experience. I think God's wrong. I can't do anything about it. I'm afraid of him. I don't want to go near him. He's, he's toying with giving up. He's toying with hopelessness. And instead of just you know, taking the sword and killing himself, he takes a step in the other direction. Why bother? I don't care anymore. I'm just going to let it all out. And he lets out his bitterness. He says, I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness, bitterness of my soul. I don't care if I can't contend with God. Verse 2, I will say to God, do not condemn me. And he does what he knows he should not do. But he doesn't care now. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you to oppress me, to reject the labor of your hands, to look favorably, favorably, <laughs> try that again, favorably on the schemes of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal or your years as a man's years that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, now this is very, very important that you see this, okay? Because he, he stepped over a line, now he's about to jump over another huge one. Look at this, verse 7. According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty. It's one thing to say, God says I'm guilty and I think I'm innocent. But it is quite another to say, Lord, you know that I'm not guilty and you're not doing anything about it. So he says, God knows that he's guiltless, and yet he's treating him like he's guilty. Do you see that? And we just, we just come back and say, what suffering reveals in here? Uh, the Newton quote, the, the vipers that are aroused in our hearts by the rod of affliction. <coughs> You know, someone talked to me last time we had Sunday school and they said, you know, are we saying when suffering brings out these sinful thoughts and desires and actions that everything about that person's life was fake and that's really what's going on in his heart? And that's a very good question. I don't think so. Because Job, to me, Job acts the exact same way we do. 
We have days when we trust the Lord, when we walk with Him, we're relying on Him, we're obeying Him, we're all that. Something happens, we end up back in the ditch. We climb out of the ditch, we repent, Lord, I shouldn't have done that, please forgive me. I love you, I trust you, please work in my heart. And we get back and we take a few steps, something happens, boom, we end up back in the ditch. And that's the Christian life. It's like, I was thinking about this. Um, there, there was one, a couple times when my father-in-law had a small airplane and he would let me fly the thing. And on one occasion, um, he let me do the work on the ground, the taxing on the ground. And you know, in a small airplane, you don't steer it with the yoke, you steer it with the rudder pedals. There's two pedals on the floor and you push on them. And if you push to the right, then the airplane goes to the right. If you push to the left, they go to the left. They control the steering wheel on the ground, the nose wheel. And in the air, they control the rudders. And that's what makes you turn like that. And I can remember him saying, okay, take the rudders. And it was just a pecan. It's, it's what, 2,500 feet, 2,800 feet runway. It's very short. And we get up the taxiway. He says, okay, steer down to the north end. And, and I'm going like this. You know, I'm just, I'm just you know, all over, you know, trying to steer that thing. It's, you know, and I'm, I'm avoiding the ditch on this. There's a ditch over there. There's someone's house over there. And you're just, you're going down. And, and it's all I could do. To, I couldn't keep that thing on center line to save my life. And I thought, that is exactly what we do in the Christian life, isn't it? You know, we end up in the ditch. We get back in the center. We end up in another ditch, get back in the... And that, that, that's real life, isn't it? And that's exactly what we see here. We see Job, the, the man who is righteous, who is godly. There's, there's no one like him in all of this area. And yet we see wickedness coming out of his heart and sin coming out in his heart, just like you and me. So I don't, I don't think this is the only thing going on. I think this is God saying, you know what, Job, there's lots of good things in your heart. There's lots of sanctifying works there. And he takes his rod and he arouses another viper and he says, here's one more area I want you to work on. I think too, and, and Newton is so good to bring this out, um, the Apostle Paul brings this out. Part of, part of spiritual maturity is, is growing in a greater understanding of our own depravity. Isn't that true? It's actually a mark of maturity to grow in your understanding of our own depravity. And that's what God is doing here. What did Newton say? I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And that was the theme of his life. And that's what God is doing here. Uh, Where were we? Oh, yes, he he says, according to your knowledge, verse 7, according to your knowledge, God, you know that I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. God knows he is not guilty, but he's punishing him anyway. And in effect, he says, you made me. Why are you doing this? Remember now that you have made me as clay, that you would turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out as milk and curdle me like cheese and clothe me with skin and flesh, knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and loving kindness, and and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you have concealed in your heart. He says, you did all this work to make me, and this is how you're going to treat me? I know that it is within you. If I sin, then you would take note of me and would not acquit me of my guilt. If I am wicked, woe to me. And if I am righteous, I dare not lift up my head. He's right back there. I can't win, right? Whether I'm wicked, whether I'm righteous, it doesn't matter. I can't go to God. Verse 16, And should, I, should my head be lifted up, 
that you would hunt me like a lion? That, that's, that's the most graphic part of this whole section where he says, if I were to look up, you know, he's, you know, he's mourning, right? He, he's despairing. If he were to look up to heaven to address God, he's afraid he's going to be met with a bow and arrow from heaven. God hunting him like a lion. He's afraid of what God will do to him if he goes to him. Verse 18, if all this is true, what does he say? Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had ever seen me. Where is he? He's right back in chapter 3, right back where he started. It's, it's interesting. Remember I told you there's three rounds. There's round one, round two, round three. Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, Job responds. Zophar speaks, Job responds. And they do that three times. Remember I told you that? Um, this is getting toward the end of round one. Zophar is going to speak next. But Job has come full circle, hasn't he? He's right back where he is. Look at this. He finally ends up back where he began in chapter 3. Why did God even allow me to be born if this is how my life would be? We see him angry. We see him bitter. We see him accusing God. Now we see him hopeless, depressed, and despairing again. He's, he's all over the runway, isn't he? He's all over it. Okay? He'll say something right. He'll be in the ditch again. He'll accuse God. He'll correct himself. He'll want to seek God. And then he's bitter and, and complaining and depressed again. Yeah. Isn't that true? That's right. That's, that's a very good point, very good connection. And probably most people don't see that as a, an intrinsically theological question, you know, that, that's so connected to the heart of God. Um, very good, absolutely. It's a very good point. Well, um, Job, our friend, is not in a good place, is he? And uh, Zophar is going to have a short speech. Uh, Job's going to respond, and we'll be done with round one. We have seen, I've gone through these, this first section a little bit more slowly because it's gotten all the themes, all the pieces on the table. What we're going to do now is we're going to look at a friend's talk and Job's response. We're going to try to do each one of those in one message. So this part is going to start speeding up. But now, but, but we, we had to go through it in detail like that to see all of the mechanics, all the inner workings that's going on. And now what I'm going to do is just start, I'm going to be your tour guide. We're going to go through it and I'm, and we're going, to, I'm going to point to them. Okay? We, we won't go uh, playing the sticks and, and, and all that, but we'll, we'll be in the tram looking off and I'll be pointing out the same things that we've seen in detail in these chapters as we continue to see things go downhill, particularly as two things we're going to see. The friends become less gracious and Job becomes more accusatory, both of them and of God. Okay? Um, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Nahum 1.7. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for um, this... uh, 
time really to sit down with Job and to look over his shoulder, um, to hear him cry out to you, to hear him debate with his friends. We see him on that ash heap covered in boils, his skin black with infection covering his body. We, we see the pain in his eyes and the sorrow in his voice. And, and at least at some level we can relate to the feeling of our theology colliding with our experience and not knowing what to do about it. Father, I pray that that is much as we might perceive affliction and suffering in our lives, that we would always remember that you are the shelter in the storm. You are the refuge. You are the strong tower. And that we would never get to the place that Job has gotten where you become an enemy instead of a friend. Uh, Lord, um, there are people that we know. There are people in our family, in our church, in our lives that aren't sure as a Christian, as a believer, that God is for them. And I pray that we would uh, be wise and gentle and gracious and encouraging counselors to them. And as Jack just pointed out, as we see many people wrestling in the midst of their depression and despair with what the purpose of life is, might we see that particularly in the lives of unbelievers uh, as an amazing theological opportunity to minister the gospel to them. And whether that happens in Cambodia or in Papua New Guinea or at the square in Granbury this afternoon, I pray that you would give us great boldness and great wisdom, gentleness and carefulness uh, to minister to the lost the wonderful truth and hope that only the gospel can bring. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.